Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Second Chance Podcast. In this episode, I'm speaking with Junior Smart a former gang member who was sentenced to 12 years in prison for possession of several kilograms of crack cocaine. In prison, Junior suffered from depression and contemplated committing suicide. On the day he planned to take his own life, a prison officer slid an envelope under the door of his cell containing photos of past family get-togethers. Junior talks about how the photos snapped him back to reality and saved his life. He then seeked help from the prison Samaritans and trained to become a listener himself. He soon discovered other areas that lacked in support. He decided to do something about it and make a change. He became a mentor for young offenders, leading him to meet with St Giles Trust and setting up his successful SOS project. This became London's largest gang exit programme. Let me start, Junior. You know, the, the, the theme of my podcast is second chance. And so let me kick it off by asking you what that term means to you, because it has lots of different meanings for different people, depending. You know, people often ask me what my second chance was. And I don't think every, anybody gave me a second chance. I kind of took back my life, having been wrongly convicted and imprisoned, et cetera, et cetera. So what does the term second chance mean to you as, as an individual, but also as a practitioner? Wow. Second chance to me means means so many different things. It means being reborn to me, like and I don't mean that in I mean that in, in a spiritual way, but not, not in the spirit not in a religious way. I mean being reborn. Like I I look at the world now with new eyes, with new sensitivity. I'll give you a really good example. So I remember when we had the Twin Towers. At that point, I was a different type of man. I was sitting in my sitting in my house. We were bunning it down. My boys were around me. We saw it. We were all shocked by it, but it didn't hit me. 
Now, when I think about it now, my sensitivity range is a lot more deep. It's a lot more deeper than that. If I was to think about 911 now, I think about all the passengers and that absolute fear that must have gripped. Do you understand my sensitivity now is a different level? Yesterday, I was I was speaking at an anti-arms demonstration purely because my sensitivity now connects with the people that cannot speak for themselves. That's what I mean by being reborn. Like, in some ways, it would have been better if they'd have just left me alone back then, because right now I wouldn't have achieved anything, probably. I would have been just society. I would have just carried on being what society thought. I, I, I remember, I think it was Carl Jung that said, um, they who don't know who they are, ask the world and the world will tell them, well, I wasn't a nice guy. I wasn't, but I wasn't also, I also wasn't directed. I wasn't sensitive. Being reborn to me, to me now means reconnecting in a way with reality that I never did before. Connecting with the suffering, connecting with a feeling of change. Like yesterday I walked away from it and I felt like, oh my gosh, like that was the best use of my time. The last time I felt like that, I was in a school talking to school children. Um, That's what I mean by being reborn. Reborn means getting a second mortgage on life. You know, like I'm living in a different way. I'm, 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 I'm trying to live up to values in a different way. It doesn't mean making it perfect. I'm far from perfect. Um, But I'm driven by different factors now. Um, and being reborn um, to me means having a second chance at family relationships, relationships that I destroyed by my actions, relationships that I damaged. That's what having a second chance to me means. It's not just coming out of prison and, and being given a second chance at re-entering society. Oh, no, like mine is a lot more deeper, a lot more deeper than that. It's so interesting that you talk about the sensitivity that you experience and explore now to when you was, like you say, sitting in a room with your boys, watching what was unfolding on the television as many people was around the world. And at that point you say, well, you didn't say the word, but I suspect you're you're, you're saying that you were desensitized or unsensitive. Well, tell me what you mean by that. I mean, what, what are you saying that the life you were leading meant you had no sensitivities to the impact the world was having on other people. What do you mean by that, Junior? There are loads of us that go through this world blind. There are loads of us that turn our eyes away from things in society that are important. You know, where I'm living right now, there's a massive homelessness problem. There's a massive homelessness problem. And I remember, you know, when I was living in London, like I was working for a company and I remember seeing looking out the window and seeing children go to the rubbish bins and literally pulling stuff out and eating it. And it hit me like, my gosh, that's that's shocking to see. But it didn't really hit me. And I think that's because a lot of us in this world go around, either there's stuff that we see and we don't like it and we turn our eyes away from it. Or at, at some point, I think, because I, I, was, I was asking questions yesterday, who can, how many people can be happy knowing that people are dying innocently? I honestly think people can stomach it. I think we see enough stuff on TV, on the media, and we we, we, we we absorb the rhetoric that it's them, it's not us. It's not happening on our doorstep. It's not happening to children or our family members. So therefore, it's kind of someone else's problem. And that's that's kind of... And, and sometimes, I think, to an element of the life I was living before, there was a level of dissidence to almost like self-protect myself. 
Do you know, like, why should I absorb that? That's nothing to do with me. And that kind of keeps you living a real a real kind of life. It allows you to carry on doing what, what you're doing. But like I said, like, if I, if I, you know, when I think about it now, oh, my gosh, it was shocking. It was, it was massively shocking and, and awful. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. All right. So to understand who Junior Smart is today, let's go back to who Junior Smart was before he became the man that he is today. So just talk to me a little bit about your upbringing, where you grew up, what life was like for you growing up and the sorts of things that you were getting up to, which eventually led to you going to prison. I don't know how many times you went to prison. So just give my listeners and me some of your backstory, Junior. So the first thing to say is I'm not a typical, what they would say, gang member, if you even want to call it that. And then there's a lot of stuff out there that's kind of about my background that's kind of mystified and added to and none of that is is actual accurate. I didn't. I wasn't raised in a in a single parent household. There were two. There were two two people there. There was one of them's my mum. I had a stepdad. It was authoritarian. You know, like you live by the rule. You live by the rules of the house, or else there's consequences. But to be fair, I have to give them both respect. Mum tried really hard. She. You've got to under. You can't just talk about that time without understanding the age of what was going on. This was the 19th century. Racism was rife. My mum was a nurse and she gave up she she gave up nursing because I had like a blood condition. I still have it. Um, it's sickle cell anemia. But that meant that they, we, immediately we had a knock-on effect on the household income. She left my, my real father because he was a violent man. Um, none of that, which I remember. This is all stuff I'm told. It wasn't, it wasn't an ideal life. Um, but we we tried, we coped, and it was me and my sister. And I would never have said it was we grew up in a housing estate, but you've got to understand all of those rifts, the racism, the prejudice, there's pressure to conform, there's pressure to rise up to the challenge. You know, like the problem that you have when you, you've got an estate where there's um, children, you know, like Lego brick next to each other is that, Everybody ultimately, to some level, has a competition of resources. Everyone's um, competing to be the person who's on top. And that leads to conflict in all sorts of different ways. Um, I would never have said it was a gang. I would have said it was a group of friends. And it wasn't, you know, this was a world that I was able to dip in and dip out of um, without without much consequence um, until after, you know, my my mother died and our lives went into kind of like a weird free fall and it became more about money then. How old uh, was you when your mum died? So you see, this is what was mad about it. I, I'd been arrest, I, I'd been arrested. I'd been on bail for numerous different things, but I'd always managed to, to get away with it. What, what kind I, of things are you talking about? What, what kind of activity? I mean, are we talking shoplifting, drug dealing, violence? Uh, I fight. Look, I'll be real with you. I've handled. I handled a gun before I was twelve, but would I have said I've been done for for firearms offence? No, I've been done for. I mean, I, th- I think that if you look through the history, there's things that are like arson, robbery, all sorts of stuff. Kind of juvenile. Kind of, you know, the police arrested have arrested me on my front door before led me out in this state in in handcuffs. But I always got away with it. I was bailed, and I and I was fortunate. After fortunate enough to get away with it 
when mum died, I was like 20, 21. And then, yeah, I started. It wasn't like, and the thing was, I was working. We were all raised to work hard, me and my sister and that. My sister never got involved in anything. But the problem that kind of arose out of it was when you're involved in that kind of lifestyle, money money comes, money goes very quickly. And it wasn't until like much later that you get when you actually stop and you look, you, you know, I don't know if you've ever done this and you've sort of like made these things like an abstract and you look at things objectively that you see where all the faults are. That there's those of people, for example, that are trying to save, save money, but they haven't looked at their income and their outcome and goings effectively to realise actually maybe that they're missing the grand just because they're spending how much money on fast food takeaways or coffees or whatever else. Yeah, they're not looking at things in the abstract because you're running, the, you're running the race. And that was basically it. So even though I was working and I was making money illegally through my friends, that money was being spent on silly stuff, trainers, drugs, um, women, my car, all sorts of stuff. So I was I was trying to run up an escalator that's basically working in reverse. And so I never actually so basically from my side of it, all that ended up happening was my risk element started to rise because I was doing things more and more risky in order to make more and more in order to make more and more money. And it just massively backfired. And I say all of that, but you see what was crazy was in the journey to to making that money, there were things that were that were coming up. So like for example, there were a couple of situations where we as a crew, we were threatened and I stood up, I put my head above the power pit and when the showdown came, by and I say it, I say it now purely because it was more by luck, I'd come out on top. Now, in the comments, most people say, my gosh, what you've just done is crazy, blah, 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 stop, like this thing's going too far. But I'm involved in a circle of, of, of a, a clique that they're saying to me, no, nah, man, Jay, you're, you're untouchable, you're this, you're that. And then so I start thinking, well, if I've done that and I've gotten away with those those charges, what else can I do? And then you see everything just got more and more serious. But anyway, I got, I got sent down for 12 years originally for, for something that was re- relatively quite minor. And then literally in that time, I decided, I mean, and it really was that first night I was in custody that I decided that I, I needed to do something about it. It was awful, absolutely awful. Like when I say that no solicitor would show up um, because I was banged to rights, it was a large, large sum of drugs and it was a maximum purity and no solicitor would turn up. My sister's breaking because I used to be one person inside of the house, another person outside the house. So she thought, right, actually, Junior's just going to get in trouble for cannabis. She had no idea it was going to be crack cocaine. And and then when all of the other stuff started to come out, but, you know, she held it together. She tried to be there for me. It was terrible. And um, that first night in custody, it was when this, no one would show up for me that I realised, Wow, like I'm not, and for all my friends and everybody that was around me, yeah, man, it was a massive wake up call. How so did like, you? How can I? Can I ask? You know, so you were obviously living this life. Like kids today, they call them roadman. They call them all kinds of things. I mean, I grew up like you on a council estate, and I lived that world myself. So I, I kind of, uh, um, and I don't know what part of the world I'm, I'm suspecting somewhere in London, but whatever there. 
there came a time when you did get arrested and ended up in custody. But how do you get caught? Because like you say, you got in trouble with the law on many occasions. You managed to break free from certain charges or, or whatever. But how did you end up getting caught for something so serious that you ended up going to prison? And, and when I say caught, I don't mean, you know, some. I don't know what I mean. I'm asking you. You tell me. Okay, so there was a number of different things that was happening, okay? And different people have different stories about this. So... There was so there was a number of times where I was told to go and link someone with packages, um, and I'd show up, and these were these were minors, yeah, minors. I had a bit of a I have a I used to have a bit of a temper problem. Like I go from zero to one hundred. That's what my sister was saying. I'm freaking predictable. So I kicked off with them about that, and in fact, what I did was I lied to the children. I made them some mash. Like literally, like which is what we call, you know, I don't know if you know what mash is, but it's it's a load of substances that are not poisonous. These are children. And then I hung around them for like three hours. These little middle class kids trying to act like they're hard with crack cocaine just to make sure that they they didn't do any like the the substance wasn't going to go. But I threatened my guys because I'm not I'm not there for that. I'm not there to I'm not there to do stuff around children and then there was another situation and there was a guy that wanted to get out and the crew didn't want him to 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 the crew didn't want him to go you mean he wanted to leave the criminal lifestyle that he was leading with you and your friends the problem the problem is is when you say it like that it makes it the problem is when you say it like that and I know that you're coming at it from the best intentions but it makes it it adds to the myth like and that's the problem. It wasn't that at all. The guys are doing the guys are doing the move. They 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 they're doing a hustle. They they're doing something in order to make money. This guy was involved in that. And then at the last minute, um, he's now saying he doesn't want to do it. Which of course is going to anyone like you imagine if your plumber you, you've arranged the plumber to come round and at the last minute they've said oh no you know what jobs a bit different they have to start all over again but except what we're doing is illegal and the problem with that is people are asking why does he want out why now who's he talking to all of that stuff and they, they the, the the onus was put on me to put pressure on this guy to complete the thing because at the end of the day money's money's there to be made. Well, I I travelled to this guy. He wasn't in this country. I travelled to him, fully like fully prepared, and I could sit in his eyes because he'd brought his girlfriend along with him, which was the the number one thing you do not do. And she's flipping out about it. And if 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 this if this move goes wrong, they're going down. They're going down for a long time. So I thought I was I was doing the right thing. And I let him go, which was stupid because I was told he's either doing it or we've got to start seeing some blood. And then when I did that, the guys were like, well, no, actually, if you're if you if you you haven't done as we've done it. And it wasn't the first time there was another incident before that. They said this time I was I was I was in a situation now. And I won't, I mean, I mean, the reality is it doesn't matter what I say because I explain this stuff and no one believed it in the court. So it's no point talking about it now. But at the end of the day, yeah, I was, I was harmed. I was absolutely harmed. And at the end of the day, people would say, this, the funniest thing about it was 
I was able to come out of prison. Like if I was working with a client um, and they were as involved as the way I was, I would be really worried about what we would do with them now. But the reality was because I paid with my silence when the charges came, I, 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 even to this day, I mentioned nobody. Um, so what would you call and sent to prison for then? So this is the funniest thing. Do you want to know the blessing? The most amazing blessing about it is on paper, it doesn't even say what it is. Like the law, so on paper, it says like something like being knowingly concerned with some sort of, it doesn't even, I think it's that knowingly concerned with class A. It doesn't, it doesn't encapsulate what happened. So nobody really, really, truly <laughs> knows anyway. Was it a supplying import importing drugs supply. it doesn't say supply and it doesn't say i think in like the importate level it doesn't say that i was the carrier it doesn't say that i was the drug mule no one was actually sure in the chain where i was that was the problem and what actually the problem that happened was when we was like when i was being interviewed my social construction like i don't know if you get what i mean but where my mindset was it was actually angry at the police for cat because I'd gotten away with so many offences. Like I thought I owned, and like you have this mad sense that you own the police, and the police will do what you say. So I'm telling the guy, of course. I mean, I take my hat off to him. I was threatening him in an interview. I was threatening him, and I mean serious. Like let's get it right. I was saying I was going to kill him. I was going to rape his wife. I was going to do all sorts of. The guy sat absolutely still. He must have just thought, you know what? This guy must realise how much trouble he's in. But in any case, it made no it made no sense because I was banged to rights, and that's how it came down. And like I said that night, so you understand my mindset. That night, it was like everything had just come down. Like now. Like I was abstract from the problem and I could see what was going on. I knew things had gone too far. Like when the guys turned around, like so when I was I was told to head somewhere before I came back, and then I was I was stripped naked and, and all sorts of stuff was had happened. I knew things had gone too far. And actually I was thinking to myself, once this thing's over, it's it's over. Like I need to come out and I need to be running a life that's away from all of this stuff. There comes a moment in time where things go too far. So and I'm, sorry to ask you again, June. I'm just, so it was for drugs though. So eventually you. It was, it was class A, class A drugs, a hundred percent purity. Um, and the quantity was massively substantial. And I could say this, it never been brought into the country in that way or seized in that form. It was a new form which, um, which no one had ever had ever seen before. And is this crack cocaine? This is power. This is a hundred percent purity cocaine. Not crack. Co- crack cocaine is a subsidiary. What we were calling us. This was a suicide mission, one to test a new way, like a form of gel. But other another way was to. It was a new type of of synthetically created product. So it's what we called a suicide mission. If you get away with it. The payoff is massive, and that's the reason why they. That's the reason why I got the charge I did. And people often say, "Oh no, you have to end up loads of times in front of the judge to get sent down." That's absolute nonsense. Those people tend not to be from minority, minoritized groups, do they? You know, I can almost tell you 
the the colour of a defendant by the charge they get, but let alone the fact that it's drugs. Like, like let's be completely honest. There's a certain type of offence that that, and I know this because I'm a criminology student now. I'm I'm doing my PhD, so there's certain types of offences, and it's it's the same thing with women. Like, women get sent down for the first time. Um, for their offences more often than guys do. Like we have, like they've had this thing in the judicial system where they they say like, well, actually, a woman who commits a crime is effectively like kind of like a devil, and they need to be removed from society for their own safety. Um, and that's a very common and a very common thing. So these are all sorts of stuff that people talk about um, that know, but they don't really refer to. So yeah, I got sent down twelve and- years for 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 drugs. You say your first night in custody was was a wake-up call. You know, I don't want you to document the dotted 12 years and how you coped and what you did, but I do want to get a sense of what life was like for you in prison. You know, you were obviously going into prison with a reputation, but it was your first time being locked up. I mean, you've been in police custody before, question, charge, but this is this is now real prison, as in your sentence. You're going to do some time, some bird, whatever you want to call it. How did you cope um, and what was the reality for you? And just remind me how old you were at the time, Junior. By the time that last charge came, I think it was about 24. So I'd been at that point, I'd I'd been involved in in that group offending very seriously for like three solid years, four years. So, yeah, it was massive. It was a massive culture shock. I don't know if you ever, you or any of your listeners have ever seen Shawshank Redemption but you know, one of the things I've got to say that film got gets really, really right is that you can actually hear the walls wailing. The first night in custody is almost like a, you know, like you're in nursery. You know what I mean? They've got you in a nice cushy space. You're allowed to make phone calls, all sorts of stuff, and then they move you into the real, into the real pack, and then it is like a pack of all. And like you actually at night time, you can hear, you can hear the walls wailing, like people are just crying and. And I mean, yeah, I did. The first night I was in custody, I, I was I was there. I was hitting my head against the wall, blaming God, blaming life, blaming everything. It was really, really hard. But yourself, yeah, absolutely, and myself. You know, I remember I called when I I got the first phone call in, and because my sister was shocked, you know, she got you know because she got the neighbours around, and the, some of the neighbours knew what I was involved in purely because. You know, you know what I'm saying. The problem was, is you kind of we connected into the community in a way that was both strength and fear. So parents would say to me, "Oh, look out for my son. I've got to do a couple of extra hours tonight." Like, and I'd do it. Do you know what I mean? But they would have known I wasn't involved in nothing illegal. But anyway, people were around the house, and I was saying to my sister, "You know, I'm really sorry. I effed up. I've I've really made a mess of this." And I heard one of the neighbours say, "Tell him." You know, he effed up, but we all love him. And it was just a massive, massive crazy. This is why you were in prison. You were talking to your sister. Yeah, 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 yeah. On the phone, on the prison phone. Yeah, on the prison phone. What 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 was the turning point for you in prison? So you're now you're, you're destined to serve these 12 years and people do their bird differently, don't they? Some try and play the hard man. Some just, you know, disappear into the shadows others just try and hustle and navigate the years without really thinking about the time you know um how did you do your time how would you describe the time that you spent and where 
when did those pivotal moments come where where you started to change if at all from the first night I started to, from the first night I started to change so what happened was I said to the officer at um, Crawley police station look there must be some support for people out there like me and he says well where you're going there's the Samaritans and you can call them out and they'll listen to you all night and then he just shammed the shutter in my face but my entrepreneurial spirit was going and I was thinking well if I don't want to call them out I want to join them if there's they're the ones providing help and support that's what I want to do I'm not going to say it was easy it was a massive struggle first night in really really hard like moving on to the moment it is like you're walking amongst wolves and where, where was you? What prison was you sent to? Um, so I was down in, so I was actually on remand. They had me on remand for eight months. So before all this terrorism offences, like my case is documented, I've been one of the longest people to be on held on remand. So it was mad. And that means you're living in this thing of where you don't even know what's going to happen. You don't know that with what sort of sentence you're going to get. You're brewing on this offence and everything. And I was also moving in in, in um, the mainstream conditions, officers um, picking on you, like picking on me because I was I was I couldn't acclimatize to him. It's a mad, it's the word craziest situation you can ever imagine. Banged up for near enough, to, so high down, bang up was twenty three hours a day. You know you're in you're in an environment where like people are out, like people are bringing are bringing you drama all the time the officers are out so you can't get anything done um it was a terrible environment and then the funniest thing is I had to I had to acclimatize to it and I was really fortunate so you said all these different things did I just do a little hustle did I keep my head down um did I fight my way through I would say a bit of everything I'd say a bit of everything and then funny but funny enough Here's what happened. There were some of the older boys on the wing. I think they felt sorry for me because of who I, because at the beginning, you know, I, I tried to take my life quite a few times and um, they took me under their wing. They, they showed me how to survive, not only to how to how to find the jacket, but how to wear the jacket, how to walk with it. I had to acclimatise and people that I perhaps would never have gotten to know on the outside except through some, they were now kind of like the people that were protecting me. Do you know what I mean? You mentioned, um, you know, attempting to to take your own life. That must have been a real, I, I don't know, I, I say a desperate situation, a hopeless situation, but these guys kind of gathered around and, and gave you the support you needed. It wasn't even them. I got sent down, got given the 12 years, and... You've got to remember, so when you're you're doing when you're doing twelve, you do two thirds. So you're you're doing so it wasn't like I'm doing I had to do I was looking at nine out of the twelve. Then nine years out of the twelve, right? So there was a guy on the wing who had who had managed to smuggle in like a lump of heroin. I was looking at ways of how I could take my life without it being the most painful. And um, which is kind of like a cowardly way of looking at it, but that's how I felt. The only way I could describe it was, is if, you know, you do a drawing and you make so many mistakes, at some point you've just got to put it in the bin. There's no point going back to it. I was, so I planned it. When you do this stuff and your head's in the right in the right mindset, you plan it. 
And basically what happened was I was going to swallow swallow the heroin because the idea was it would just make you go to sleep. And then what happened was is I was preparing myself to do this and I heard these footsteps coming up to the door and this officer just flung these pictures underneath. They'd been sent to me by a friend, a friend of the family. And what it was is one of my friends had lost both his parents and that night we'd had a really good wake and um, I said, well, I'm just going to get him absolutely wrecked. He's not going to remember a thing. <laughs> and um, the pictures were from that night. You see, what had happened until that point, I was just a name and a number. And the way people were talking to me, I don't mean it in a bad way, but I'm sure everybody knows what it's like to be in an abusive relationship where people are talking to you like scum. People are gaslighting you. People are, And, and you, your, your voice is never heard. I could never say anything negative. I couldn't even so much as make a suggestion. They don't want to talk to you. They're just telling you what to do. You know what I mean? And you do what you are freaking told. And... Um, it just reminded me that I was a human being. Seeing those pictures in, yeah, in the gathering yeah, yeah, on the outside yeah, world. It just reminded me of like, no, I'm not that bad. I did the most stupidest thing. I flung the heroin out of the window. <laughs> my, my, my man came back. He was he was expecting to find the body. That was how he planned it. And But he forgave me. He forgave me. You know, but he said, don't ever take, don't ever... Think of that. If you're not going to do it, don't ever think about doing that stuff again. And boom, I was on the path then. But anyway, to cut a long story short, my journey was just about how I could, I wanted to make myself a better person. And the way I could describe it was taking like the shirt out of an iron, you know, like taking the shirt out of a tumble dryer and you're ironing one crease out and you're seeing another crease appear somewhere else and you iron that crease out. And it was a bit like that. I dropped out of school without any... GCSEs at all. I came across under in the prison environment. I worked out I get an extra fifty p a week um, for every GCSE that I I for every qualification that I get. So I did qualification after every. At one point, I think I must have been they cap you at like twelve pounds a week. I must have done. I must have, and I know you know I did all of that. Then I was like, okay. So what was happening is under the Samaritans. They've got like a prison listener scheme. I was coming across, I'd been trained up as a listener, right? So I'm providing support to other people going through times of crisis. And I was becoming aware of people that couldn't read or write. So one guy called me out. He said, what you're telling me, are you confidential? I'm like, yeah. He's like, he just pulled out this massive stack of letters, right? Can you read them to me? Yeah, can you help me write these letters back? And that's what I did. And then what happened was there was a guy inside High Down who was in there for a really serious offence. I think it might have been a manslaughter. He came across and um, he was reading one article in the officer's mess because he was like one of the orderlies. And there was like five grand up for grabs. And what we sat down, we're talking about, like, what, what could we do with this five grand? Because it's like, let's apply for it. I'm like, we can't apply for it. We're serving inmates. He says, no, you've got to plant the seeds in the officers' minds of what to do and let them think it's their idea. Anyway, we come up with this idea that we would set up the toe-by-toe reading scheme, which would teach guys how to read in their cells. Yeah, we would use a section of the listeners to do it. He did the paperwork. I did the paperwork. We spoke to the head of education. They did the paperwork. We got the money. 
tie-by-tie reading scheme is still active to this day in um, in Swellside Prison. And then I was like, my gosh, if we can do that, I did that with nothing, what else can I do? And what um, what what exactly is toe by toe reading? So, and an one prisoner would go in and read the letters, or or teach another prisoner yes. to read and write. There's only a couple of pictures, and one of the pictures that was taken of me was teaching a guy how to read and write in his cell. Yeah, me, the person that didn't even have a GCSE, was teaching somebody how to read the very basic, like the very basics. And then once you so you start off with the basic letters, a bit like nursery. And then it's kind of like the letters and then the sounds, the phonics, and then what that looks like. And how rewarding, how I mean, no doubt that the prisoners, Junior, were benefiting from this, this entrepreneurial exercise that you and your fellow prisoners and staff were, were, were supporting them with. But how rewarding was it for you? And what did you go on to do? Because I know that you, you, you know, eventually got released from prison because you wouldn't be talking to me now, but you got released from prison. But what did it spark in you? Because you do a huge amount of work in this space right now. So tell me a little bit more about, you know, the rewards that you've gotten and what you do now. Okay, so I'll tell you what it sparked in me, right? Everybody in life is kind of like out for what they can get. I don't mean it in a bad way. You wouldn't apply for it. The first thing most people do when they apply for a job is they look at the salary. What's the job involved in? Like, the reality was, is I I think I found that life was always going to be more rewarding if I was if I was giving. If, like, I know it sounds weird, right? And then there's, 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 there's like that the famous thing, don't ask what you can, you know, your country can do for you. Ask. It's not like that at all. There's like there's it's like I said to you the sensitivity of of where I am now is I understand that there's so much people that are in need so much people that are less fortunate than ourselves and nobody is helping them nobody is listening to these people nobody is even advocating like nobody mentioned you know even when they talk about crime and stuff no one's talking about the impact on the families no one's talking about how that family is suffering and somebody needs to do it somebody needs to do it because the system isn't working like let me tell you I was saying goodbye to people on the Friday. By the Wednesday, the following week, they were coming back. And that what I was able to see was the gap. Like, there were always something. Well, like, so either, you know, they're going to go back to the same area with the same associates or they're going to come out and they're going to have the same issues running around them. And I was, I'll be honest with you, my most unselfish time was also my most selfish because I knew if it could happen to them, it could happen to me. And I was going to have my own stuff to come back to. And I didn't want my sisters and my family to be dependent on me. So the spark that was inside of me was somebody has to do something. And I was, you know, I tried it the other way. I tried taking, I tried doing the smash and grab. I tried doing the the legalised tests. And it's just not, it wasn't, it wasn't ever going to work. So for me, it was always going to be about, okay, what can I do? What can I, how can I use my hands? And also it was really humbling because it wasn't like I've come at this thing about, oh, I want money. I want a big name. I want a big reputation. Those sort of things just came about as a subsidy. You know, my intention before, you know, you and I were talking earlier about the newspaper article, my intention was just to prove it could be done. 
And that's why I gave the clients everything in that first year before that newspaper article came out that said, like, none of my clients would be offended. That year wasn't at no cost at all. I, I, had, I didn't take any leave, but it was no point because I was on license. Where was I going to go? It's not like I can travel travel abroad. So I might as well dedicate myself to the job. And what I, what I was saying to myself was, is on roads, I would have been, I would have been non-ceasing. There would have been no time out, no nothing. I would have given it a hundred percent if money was involved. So why can't I do it here? And that's how I did it. That's how I've been doing it with my studies. So I chased down and harassed St. Giles. Um, I got the release on temporary license. I did, I did have some really big supporters you know, um, like the head of education in, in um, Blantyre House, she gave me a lot of help and a lot of support. And I just dedicated myself to the project 100%, 1,000%. And I still and tell, do. tell my listeners what that project is. What What is that project? Let me tell you about SOS. So SOS Project is an ex-offender-led project. We use people with lived experience of the criminal justice system of gangs and negative lifestyle choices and exactly the same like the Samaritans like I was doing in prison we're providing one-to-one support to young people that are caught up in gangs uh, child criminal exploitation and all of these negative cycles of behavior and then into you know so I did that that's still running now that is we're coming up to the 15th year anniversary of that project and SOS started with just twenty thousand pounds. It was it was deemed too risky, but they was they were happy to 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 try it as an ex, as a bit of an experiment. And why why would they consider? I mean, whoever they are, but you know, funders. I suspect why would they consider something like that risky? Surely, someone like yourself who's lived that life, talking to a young girl or guy to try and steer them away from that life. There's a win-win, you know. If if you fail, at least you tried. If no one's trying, there's no chance of changing that individual's direction. I mean, how could they even consider that those are not the right ways to do things? Raphael, you know, my mum used to say this: common sense just ain't that common, right? If you look at it, like think back to when you were younger. Would you have gone to a parent if you'd have had an issue, or you're going to go to your friends, like? This is this is a common, a very common feat, a very common factor. Like when I was I was ill um, a couple of months ago, I went to the hospital. They said to me, oh, no, you know what? We're going to send you to the specialist department Like we've got knowledge. But the specialist department, they really know what they're talking about. Here's the reality. We've got an issue of of, of serious group violence, serious like, you know, just before covid. Do you know how many young people were murdered on the streets of London by violent means? 150, 100. The youngest person that no one ever mentioned is because there was a lady that was killed and she was carrying a baby inside of her and it only survived for like three days. So everybody discludes that that unborn, but I'm telling you, it's 150. It was massive. Um, And yet still we have got people without without the knowledge of what it takes, like actually coming in with prescribed solutions, telling everybody else what to do. But they're not from that lifestyle. They don't understand it. And then they they don't understand why the young people won't listen to them. You know, the other day I was running a training session and, and the lady was saying to me, well, why doesn't he just do the CV 
like the CV, that like if he if he just applied himself, created a CV, then he could apply for jobs. Like I'm telling you, if your family is in destitution, the last thing you're going to be thinking of is building a you know building a CV, and that CV may or may not be the solution to the problems. And in fact, these families that we're working with, a CV is the last thing on their list because before I get to the kid to get him to think about education, training, or employment, I've got to help his mum access the benefits she's entitled to because the state is failing the families out there. Make no mistake, obstacle after obstacle. And then before I can help her even get to that, I've got to help her deal with that relationship with that that's abusive and toxic, that's making her have less self-esteem. But then before I deal with that, I've actually got to deal with other children running up and down the house because they're mimicking their father's behaviour, which is abusive and violent to the mum, which is further damaged. This is all like to say, where does healthy diet fit in that scenario? Somewhere after helping her get access to her bedroom, somewhere after helping her, um, level the mum level up her um her rent arrears so that she's got more money in her pocket somewhere in the mix of that and then after that comes helping the son and helping them access the stuff that's what it requires I'll tell you something else that with the society is failing they've got the wrong expectations so the frameworks are very dated Raphael they, they they're built up on this thing of well one hour, two hours here and there will be enough to change somebody. That's not what it's going to take. And another thing as well that this, this system gets wrong is it thinks that if you hit someone with punishment, then that will make them change, stop and make their tracks. I remember being in prison, a guy was self-harming and the prison officer was saying to him, well, listen, if you stop self-harming, I will enable you to see your son or daughter a little bit more often during the week. That's the wrong, that's applying logic to a mental health issue. And many of the young people we're working with are traumatised. They've come from complex. And if it's not trauma on the street, it's trauma in the home. You know, the amount of kids I've worked with, and I have now worked with thousands that have said that how this started was home wasn't a safe place for them. They wanted to come out of the home and that's how they got groomed and that's how they got brought in. So that's why SOS is so valuable because what we're able to do is... This is a time resource heavy. To come up with the solutions, you need time and resources. And you also need real empathy of where these um, young people are coming from. People with lived experience have that. But I don't just take, we don't just take anyone with lived experience. We develop them and we train them exactly the same as how the Samaritans did it. But we do it to an MVQ level three. So that person, the aim is that they're not just going to become some super enhanced ex-offender, they're going to become a professional. That's what I want them to be able to move forward in their life, their, their life cycle. It's, it's, so it's, do, you know what, do you know what, sorry to interrupt you, Junior, what's really interesting, I mean, you articulate the issues powerfully, you know, talking about having to address one problem, um, but before you can, you've got to address all the problems that come before that. And I think, you know, you don't hear very many people talking about it in the way that you just talked about it. And it's disappointing to hear and think that that person who sort of said, why don't they just do a CV? Are the people who pull the purse strings or have the power to make changes and yet they have no concept? Even in this day and age when these problems are a cyclical, you know, they go on and on and on and on and on. Just one question. When you mentioned at the end there that the lived experience people that you work with and train, is there, and, and I, I understand why you do that, is there a danger when you take someone as articulate as yourself, who's lived the experience, is raw enough to reach that demographic, that, that 
person you talked about with CV could never get to. Is there a danger when you overtrain someone, overeducate them in that space that the authorities think you need to to have qualifications for to in order to you know apply the programs? Is there a danger that they lose their sense of connection with the kids and the relatives and families that they're trying to reach? How, how do you protect against that happening? Because we do, don't we? The more educated you become, the more your vision changes, your view changes, you articulate things different. And so you become slightly more removed from the world that you're trying to help, i.e. the kids. I don't see it as a deficit at all, Raphael. I see it as a benefit. Um, as an organisation, we need to be like a beating heart. Yeah, so people should be able to come in and move on. The problem that we have with SOS is that actually our, our turnover, staff turnover is very low. And such is society that people come into the project and they don't want to leave because they're scared that actually they won't be treated the same, like, for example, as an equal somewhere else. They'll be tarred as the ex-offender. Sometimes they carry the ex-offender label outside of prison. Like, so you come up with you must have come across these people all the time people that they live out their label they the first thing that they you know they want to talk about is their offense and how it was a dark part and I want them to move forward and past that the second the third thing I want to say is that you know so when I'm sitting down with a client and you know that a young person I can talk street saying all they want you know no one can tell me more about the drug game than what I've just been through but I, that's not how the interaction goes. Like my background is only useful when I think there's an actual, because you, the idea isn't to get it out there for the sake of me feeling better. And the idea should never be that I can take um, lessons from my life and apply it to the client's life because the client life might be completely different to mine. I actually stay where I am. I want the clients to aspire to be something more than they are because that's what we're seeing with the young. You know, half of the legacy of what we've got with the young people is they haven't got a, they haven't got a sense of identity. Where does that? Where has that been taken? That's been taken in the way that they've been educated. Look, these young kids aren't being told that they are kings and queens and that they are able to achieve. They're being presented with, presented with obstacles that are too low. Why else would they be chasing after the latest set of trainers? Why else would every young person want to be a grime MC? A grime MC is great for for some, but for the vast majority, they'll never ever enter into that arena. But they think it's viable. Like how many young people have you worked with that have, have come up to you and say, Oh yeah, I want to become a mechanic or I want to be a I want to work in neural surgery? That's not what's happening. These arenas, the arenas where these young people are coming from, isn't that their, their aspirations are high? Their aspirations are too low. And that's what they're aiming for. And so it's up to us as adults to show them that, look, you know, this is the way. This is possible. Somebody can become like you, Raphael. Someone can run a podcast. Someone like them, like with the mix. So what I'm trying to say with the kids, so for example, this kid was telling, talking to me yesterday about, so the day before yesterday about wanting to get involved in grime, I'm pointing out the people that he should be looking at. What about Akala? What about Loki? Yeah, they, they, these are rappers that don't swear and F and blind. These are people that talk about conscious stuff. If you produce that, if you want a qualification in music, like don't just make music for the sake of it. Let's get your qualification in it. Then you can change your situation. And then what I'm saying to the kids is once you get there, look behind you, get See who's 
on the wayside behind you and you help them get to where you are. And that's how we progress. That's how we become a nation of wealth builders. That's how we, we, we change our, our narrative because the world's got enough of street soldiers that, you know, you, people mystify my past. My past is way back. What, what do they do with the young people is, is insane. We need to change that narrative, man. Definitely. I, I totally agree with you, and 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 you have, haven't you? I mean, I know that the work you've done since your prison time um, has led to you winning lots of awards, the SOS project, the work that you're doing with kids. I know that there has been a lot of recognition, well deserved recognition. What are you doing tomorrow? You, you you know, what's your ambitions? I know you mentioned that that you are doing a lot of training at the moment in terms of you know furthering your education. I don't know where else you can go because it sounds like you've already acquired enough in order to to sort of tackle this space the way that Junior does it and the team around you. So what what does the future hold? And I know this battle is endless and and it it, it can come in different shapes and, and sizes. But just to bring this to a close, what does the future look like? What do you need? What what do you want people to know you need or the challenges? I mean, what's your message, Junior? Oh wow. Okay, but I believe that I really want one of the biggest messages that everyone deserves a second chance and sometimes even a third chance and a fourth chance. Like we all um, are human beings and we all we all make mistakes. And I, and I hear a lot of people saying, well, not everyone's like me. But believe me, there are loads of people that are coming out of custody. The problem that we have as a society is that we're limited by what by by how far we spread our ambitions. Um, at the moment, there's still only a couple of organisations, the Timpsons of the world, the Sainsbury's of the world, that will employ ex-offenders. And um, we're still coming up against this narrative that says that, you know, they, these are these people are risky individuals. Honestly, genuinely believe with the right support, you know, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen when people believe in you, but even more amazing things happen when people give you a second chance. To and me, an opportunity yeah an opportunity an absolute opportunity and um what am I doing tomorrow like so I've embraced fatherhood I, I recently became a dad ah, congratulations so, boy or girl it's a boy he's a boy he's a boy and I've I've had to learn the hard way to release the rate I'm very protective I'm very very whatever's the most dangerous thing you can do with anything you'll do it and I've had to sort of like, kind of like, yeah, so like, I mean, if you had, yeah, I, I had the real problem with just letting him walk around the house, like I'm following him all the time. I had to sort of sort of say, okay, all right, I'm, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be watching you, but I'm going to be, give you some space and let you experiment and see the world through your own eyes, which you need to. But I've got some fantastic, we're working on some fantastic initiatives. I, I've, I've never stopped being an innovator and I, I'm tired like I'm tired of of, di- of of seeing things happen that that just aren't working in terms of SO, yes yeah, so in terms of SOS in terms of the work we're doing I would really appreciate any support from any of your followers like just to follow St Giles follow SOS we're not just just lend us lend us your ears lend us your eyesight and lend us your networks. Any any anyone that would be you think would be beneficial would be fantastic to the way forward because we can't do this on our own. And this we need as many people on board as as possible. 
And how can they get in touch then? So I know the St. Giles Trust, which is an organization based in Camberwell, SOS is linked to the St. Giles Trust, which yes. they go on the St. Giles. But you tell me and you tell my listeners how yeah. they can connect with you, you know, website, email address. How do they connect? Brilliant. So the St. Giles Trust website is www.stgilestrust.org.uk. There's a tab up there. That says um, work with us, support us. We're not. It's not just financial. It's um, networks. We really like connecting us with networks. Is really important. Talk about the work of of SOS. If you click on the tab on there, you'll see SOS. What we do, where we are. We do school sessions to um, impart real to. Again, it's it's not. Uh, scare straight model we're there to impart real tools so that young people can make better lifestyle choices we've got a range of sessions everything from what happens with peer groups to the impact on victims and communities um, and I'm out there as well in the Twitter space so I'm at underscore junior smart you can follow and see where I am like like I said yesterday I was at this anti-arms rally I think a few weeks before that I was talking at a uh, about um, um, about a race and equality uh, to young people. Yes, yeah, so follow our work, support our work, spread the word of our work, and where where you can, like support our work, it'd be fantastic. Brilliant, Junior. Thank you so much for coming on the show, sharing your personal story, your your story that involves a lot of other um, individuals who, no doubt, have benefited from from your journey. Is now their journey, and let's hope that their journey will, as you say, bring others forward. Thank you so much for your time. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Look after yourself, my man. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe, share and follow us on social media at A Reporter on Instagram and Twitter or Second Chance by Raphael Rowe on Facebook. As this is an independent podcast, all the support is appreciated. If you would like to sponsor or advertise on this show, please get in touch via social media, email or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. This episode is produced by Daryl Johnston and Sophie Warner and me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.